0: All right, thank you. Hello everyone. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, the Human Rights Foundation's conversation series where we expose dictators, debate pressing global human rights issues, and brainstorm how we can collectively put human rights at the very top of the world agenda. My name is Jenny Wang and I oversee the organization's Asia Related Initiatives. HRF is an international nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting and protecting human rights globally with a focus on countries under authoritarian rule. We unite people in the common cause of promoting human rights and liberal democracy. You may visit our website at hrf.org to learn more. Please also make sure to follow us here on Twitter for more conversations like this one today. Previous guests include human rights and anti-corruption activist Bill Browder, Russian democracy activist Vladimir Karamurza, and many more. Before we begin, please note that this conversation will be recorded to be released as a podcast episode on HRF's Dissidents and Dictators podcast series, which is available to listeners via Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. Our guests this week are Babur Ilchi from Campaign for Uyghurs, Tenzin Yangzom from Students for a Free Tibet, and Anna Kwok from Hong Kong Democracy Council, as they discuss how youth in the diaspora are grappling with the Chinese government's abuses in their respective homelands. The conversation will be moderated by Mustafa Aksu, who is the program manager from the Uyghur Human Rights Project. The conversation today will highlight the Chinese Communist Party's widespread religious persecution in Tibet, mass internment in the Uyghur region, and the national security law in Hong Kong. The conversation will also shine a spotlight on how the next generation is mobilizing in the diaspora. Before we kick off, please note that we will have a Q&A session at the end of the moderated conversation. So if you are tuning in and you have any questions, please directly DM me here at HRF underscore CN. With that all said, thank you so much for joining us, Barbara, Tenzin, Anna, and Mustafa. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Mustafa, I'll pass it on to you now.
1: Thank you, Jenny. And thank uh, Human Rights Foundation for coordinating this panel. And thank you to some of my colleagues at Uyghur Human Rights Project for helping the HRF plan this informative panel that will hopefully shed light on a unique perspective we don't often hear about in discussions regarding the Chinese government's oppression and abuses abroad. And of course, and thank you to each of the guest speakers today who agreed to share their stories with us. And I feel honored to share the same platform with you all today. Um, To begin, uh, could you please describe what is happening in your homelands? Moreover, how would you describe these atrocities to someone who has never heard of them um babur let's begin with you sure uh thanks mustafa um hi everyone um what i would
2: describe well, what's happening in East turkestan or the oil region um is genocide essentially uh we have millions of oilers who are being held in concentration camps uh, where they're routinely subject to uh, physical abuses torture uh, they're deprived of the necessities for life like adequate shelter, um, hygienic quarters, sleep, uh, food. Um, intern uh, internees, detainees are subject to violent abuse and sexual violence. Um, and this was something that was discussed in a February article in 2021, uh, where survivors of these camps recounted their horrific experiences of mass rape and systematic sexual violence against them. Uh, furthermore, Uh, What we see is this um, authoritarian police state that uses cutting-edge technology to monitor every single person in the region, uh, checking their phones, their location, to make sure that they stay in line with what the party wants or desires from them. Um, And overall, we're seeing an erasure of the Uyghur people, of the Uyghur culture uh, by the party that doesn't tolerate dissent or difference and is using it as a way to slowly transform the oil region into something
1: that they want. Thank you, Babur. Uh, Tenzin, would you like to be the next? Hmm,
0: Looks like Tenzin's having some connectivity issues. Shall we move on with Anna?
1: Yes, please. Anna, are you here?
0: Sure.
3: Um, So hi, everyone. I'm Anna Corp from HADC. So right now, what has been going on in Hong Kong was essentially that um, back in 1997, Hong Kong was handed over to China uh, under the framework of one country, two system, which uh, essentially promised Hong Kong and Hong Kongers to enjoy a certain level of uh, autonomy. But throughout the years, um, actually, the sense of autonomy has been chipped away. And the Chinese Communist Party has been trying different ways um, to really Uh, control Hong Kong in the background and try to implement different policies that would essentially take away people's freedom. And uh, in response, uh, Hong Kongers in 2019 banded together and started this mass movement and mass protest that a lot of people have seen on the newspapers um, that really tried to tell the government that we want to fight for our democracy, our freedom, and the autonomy that was uh, promised to us by international law. Um, But instead, the government responded with tear gases, um, police, uh, police violence, and a lot of different kinds of violence. So in 2020, uh, the Hong Kong government together um, with uh, the CCP decided that they would actually implement this law called the National Security Law. And the National Security Law basically is being weaponized politically. To really erase all uh, possible freedom that people can enjoy, so right now the situation is that uh, our city no longer sees mass protests and no longer has freedom or autonomy in any sense, and that was done through a series of political persecution. And right now we have over a thousand prisoners in jail and also many more in uh, waiting uh, to for their sentencing. And right now the media is also being censored, and there are only propaganda news outlets right now. Hong Kong, and even organizations uh, that used to uh, organize politically or used to just, you know, gather protests, gather events, or even just to network people together are now forced into disbandment. So, right now, uh, what's more is that even our sense of identity is being uh, erased and criminalized, that people cannot really say that they're Hong Konger. They would have to say they are Hong Kong Chinese or Chinese. And uh, even rep- With products, you cannot say products are made in Hong Kong, they have to be said to be made in China. So with a lot of uh, measures like these, a lot of people in Hong Kong have decided to leave or they're leaving Hong Kong uh, in the coming years for fear of the national security law. So right now, uh, the Hong Kongers are really trying to build a diaspora uh, globally and to build a future, a possible path for us to go back home, uh, uh, possibly. But still, I would have to say that uh, people who have decided to remain in Hong Kong are still trying to fight, uh, and they're still trying to persist. Um, But what we're facing here right now, as we all know, is this um, dictatorship that does not stop at at any cost. Uh, They do not stop with our uh, protests. They do not stop even if the world tries to. Really tell them to stop. They only stop if the world acts together and acts in unison uh, to have concrete uh, measures that stop them from uh, uh, to hold them accountable. So that's why I'm really glad that we're having this cross movement conversation today, and we really have to build this more comprehensive story to let the world know what the CCP has been doing to not only its own people but to people around the world.
1: Thank you, Anna, for sharing what's happening in Hong Kong and what's happening to Hong Kongers. Uh, Tenzin, are you with us now?
4: Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Apologies yes. for that. Awesome. Um, a couple of things about what's happening inside Tibet right now. I would probably start with um, the that Tibet is ranked as the least free country in the world, currently only tied with Syria, according to Freedom House, in terms of political rights, and civil liberties. Um, right now, there are almost approximately a million Tibetan children in residential boarding school programs that include pre-boarding school programs um, away from their families and from their communities as a cornerstone of Xi Jinping's campaign to eliminate the Tibetan identity within one generation. Um, and also, monasteries and cultural sites are constantly being demolished by the CCP. And I think many of you guys know this here, you know, it's a crime to hold something like a Tibetan flag or to even say phrases like free Tibet or even to even simply send, you know, non-political things like sending money to families or relatives abroad. We've seen Tibetans inside Tibet being punished for that. So there's currently absolutely pretty much no freedom inside Tibet today.
1: Thank you, dear guest speakers. Um, Discussing such personal and heavy matters with people are completely unaware of them is a common experience as a member of the diaspora community. So could you please describe the intersections of your identity as a Uyghur, Tibetan, or a Hong Konger, and your identity as a young person in America attending American schools or working in U.S.-based organizations, etc. So how have these identities matched or clashed in your experience?
2: Uh, I can start uh i hopefully i don't subvert the discussion too much by admitting that i'm a canadian um but i also am we so for me growing up it wasn't really a um a thing that i thought about all that much you know my family was a i'm a i visited back home once twice um but it never really played that large role in my life i had always felt like i had been Canadian or become Canadian assimilated. And it was only really when the ability to access the culture, the, the ability to connect with my heritage, with my family back home, with the language, all these were under threat that it kind of woke me up. And it made me realize that this is something that's important to me, that's um, a part of me, and that it's something that I should be working to learn more about, not only for myself, but so that I can Pass it down to generations, as well as it, uh, fight for it, so that it's there for future generations, and hopefully for our generation right now.
4: Yeah, I can share a little bit um, as well. Um, I, growing up as someone who identifies as an American, I would say I've always grown up a little bit conflicted about my dual identity because um, I would attend public schools in the Massachusetts, like, state um, systems. I always think I felt a bit Americanized in that sense, always trying to immerse myself and blend in and intricate my life as a way of, like, preservation and survival instinct. Um, so I often felt like I was very American throughout the weekdays and then a little bit more Tibetan on the weekends because I would attend, like, Tibetan Sunday schools and then, like, perhaps some Tibetan get-togethers and functions on the weekends, um, so I felt it like I struggled a bit in trying to juggle my different identities and like wearing different hats depending on who I was with and like um, what I was doing in that day. But I, since I got involved in the Tibetan freedom movement, I was definitely able to bring those identities together in a very cohesive way. And like, um, yeah, it, the Tibetan, being in the Tibetan freedom movement has allowed me to see the view and and it has allowed me. I don't, it has my identity that sounds.
3: Right, I can share a bit as well. So uh, I think my experience uh, is a bit different from Tenson and Weber in the sense that I was born and raised in Hong Kong. And I have been so uh, until when I was 17, then I moved to Norway for my high school. And then in 2016, which was when I was around, I think, 19, then I came here to the United States uh, to pursue my undergraduate degree at NYU. And of course, when I came here as an international student, uh, my sense of identity would have always been being a Hong Konger. Uh, and that would be the first and foremost identity that I had. But I think with you know the recent change of life event in such a dramatic way that I have to be in exile, then the question has to be asked that, how am I going to proceed You know, with how I position myself? Because a lot of the time, I think uh, the sense of identity is being is really uh, constructed by how you interact with your surrounding and what kind of context you're situated in. So right now, if I'm no longer uh, physically in Hong Kong and the geographical Hong Kong, how can I sustain or how can I grow my sense of being a Hong Konger, right? And that actually is still a question that I've been struggling with. Um, But then I think uh, the fact that because I'm working so actively in the Hong Kong movement and how I'm trying to build a Hong Kong diaspora with other Hong Kongers, so I would always say that uh, I am a Hong Konger first and foremost. uh, But I also have to admit that by having lived in America for several years, I'm getting more and more you know, influenced by different American ideals and ways of life here. But eventually, I think right now, I'm seeing myself as more of a global citizen as well because I think in a lot of advocacy work I'm doing, uh, I'm not only talking about the values of Hong Kong or of America, right? In the end, I'm really talking about some universal values that people around the world want to pursue. And those are freedom, democracy, and uh, really respect you know, for un- one another Uh, And that is why I think right now the way I identify myself is not only as a Hong Konger, but also as a global citizen that has the ability uh, to uh, juggle between different hats and that would also uh, be, you know, talking to Hong Kong Americans or even Americans um, as someone who has enough uh, cultural context and context of the country that I'm currently living in.
1: Thank you, Anna, uh, Tenzin and Babur for your responses. To follow up, uh, how has your experience as a secondary survivor affected your idea of a community? I mean, like, how was how has it shaped your relationship with those who share similar backgrounds like you?
4: Yeah, I can start with this one. Um, I don't think I really consider myself a secondary survivor just because I grew up in exile in India and then had the opportunity of being raised in the United States but I would say like every single Tibetan person has their own unique family story of like devastating exile and all the traumas that sort of accompany that and I think I see a lot of parallels in the sense that many of my Uyghur friends have all have family members in concentration camps and so these are like the tactics that the CCP has been using for far too long and I think I've learned a lot from the old generations uh, specifically my father who grew up inside Tibet and had to flee through the Himalayas when he was about seven or eight years old and it kind of gives a strong sense of what Tibetans inside Tibet have endured in the past generations all the traumas that they've faced while trying to flee, flee a country and then trying to you know grow up in a whole different area like I think that sort of gives responsibility to my generation to step up and sort of uh, accept the roles that we have to do And so I think because of that, community is so important because they're not uh, just only the people. But um, I think it has a lot to say with, you know, the responsibility that you carry as being the second, third generations, whether you're born up in exile or you're, you know, born in a different area. I think that just has a lot to do with um, how all of our experiences, experiences can sort of unite us together.
3: Right. I can also uh, share a bit about my views is that uh, so also I think I don't consider myself as a secondary survivor because I'm freshly, you know, in exile. And I think being in exile has changed my way of uh, viewing the community in the sense that uh, back then, I think community was a rather geographically grounded concept that has to be, uh, you know, The location has to be proximate. It will be about people who live in the same city. But right now, since so many of us have to go into exile and we have to be scattered around the world, um, but then we continue to try to organize our diaspora uh, using, you know, uh, virtual platforms and using a lot of messaging uh, uh, platforms. And so the community, the sense of community really have expanded to this, this, I think, uh, form that, You don't have to be physically together, but still you can have uh, the unseen way of connecting to each other. But of course, I think the connection was made because we have a sense of collective trauma. And that is actually the number one thing that uh, make our community strong because everyone has their, you know, Uh, A share of the trauma they've seen but also their share of survivor's guilt that they're not the ones in jail and so I think right now the way I think about community it's that I want to build a community that recognizes these uh, trauma and these mental wounds that I really want people to try to heal them together instead of doing it separately Um, but yeah I think it's um, it's weird that we have to be you know, outside of Hong Kong, but then we're still maintaining a community of Hong Kong. But I think that's uh, what we have to be doing uh, if we want to fight against the CCP in the long run.
1: Thank you. What about you, Babur? Uh, yeah, I mean,
2: for me, it, this what's happening today to Uyghurs, this genocide, has kind of opened my eyes to the, the broader community. Um, for me, we always had a really small oiler community where I lived, and um, that kind of made it hard to see a, a range of oilers or meet people that I would connect with how I would normally. And so, with this happening, I reached out a little more, and I found that this diaspora is online and and so connected and friendly, and it's a it's a virtual community that brings oilers together. Uh, as a whole and it's been really great to see that and experience that Um, and I don't know if secondary survivors something that necessarily applies here but it certainly has made me reflect on what the world that community is to me and it's shown me that there's more ways than one to access a community of your culture and your people
1: uh, and to be a part of it and be involved. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, So while you are involved in fighting for human rights against oppression abroad and other American youth are involved in fighting for different causes, like currently the youth play an increasingly important role in the sphere of the American politics. So how has your perspective, um, again, uh, I was not going to use the word <laughs> secondary survivor, but probably I have to again. Um, how has your perspective as a secondary survivor or being person in exile shaped your perspective on American politics? Uh, can you hear me?
4: Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can definitely start. I think this question is really interesting. Um, I would say it has definitely widened my perspective of American politics, and I think the greater understanding of colonization. Um, like me and SFT, we've been working a lot recently with Indigenous activists, and it's opened up a whole can of, you know, really complex um, conversations and identities. And I think the best way to show solidarity is to constantly decolonize our work, whether it's, you know, decolonize Tibet, but also just not even in just China movement, but everywhere that we are doing our work. And so while I, when I interact with the U.S. politics, I definitely always try to do it through the lens of colonial legacy and, and conservation for these indigenous folks, because I think many Tibetans are indigenous to Tibet. So I think that's also a really important conversation to have.
2: I can speak uh, briefly. I kind of as an outsider to American politics, but living in DC, um, it's been interesting to be where it happens. Um, I think most of the ways that it's shaped my perspective is recognizing that you know human rights is a fundamental that has to happen everywhere, not just abroad, not just for the oiler people, but for all affected people, um, and that justice is something that is critically important to achieve for everyone. Um, and I think the other aspect of that is that our world has become so increasingly complex and interconnected that things here can have unintentionally negative effects um, elsewhere. And I think the issue of oil or forced labor is a pretty good example of that where um, solar panels that were being manufactured were being manufactured with oil or forced labor. And we need to address both issues. We can't build climate justice on the backs of slave labor, um, but at the same time, we can't forsake, um, you know, climate justice overall. We need to create ways so that justice, equity, and human rights are preserved and maintained and advanced for all people.
3: Yeah, I think uh, both uh, Janssen and Berber brought up really good points about how, you know, our uh, individual our movement and our position as exiles uh, really informed how we understand American politics but one other thing that I wanted to bring up is that I think it's interesting to see how there seems to be this tension between the younger and the older generation no matter which community or which um, you know country that we're really at because in Hong Kong I felt the same thing that youths have been trying so hard to fight to be heard and to be respected and really they have been trying to let uh, people who are in power to understand that um, youths or you know the younger generation is really the ones who should have a say in the future because the future belongs to them and I think that is such an interesting power structure that uh, everywhere a, a lot of places around the world Uh, have adopted. And so the the definition of age also uh, usually implies, you know, different policy priorities, but as well as uh, the methods that people try to mobilize people. Because I feel like uh, in our younger generation across the world, we often try to use a more horizontal approach uh, to mobilize people, uh, um, to organize protests, and to get people to support the same cause. And I think uh, it has been interesting, and I think it has been You know eye-opening for me to see how American youths are also trying to adopt different methods and in fact actually when I first um, started talking about you know how Hong Kongers uh, organize our movements based off internet and uh, how to do it horizontally uh, I remember some uh, activists in the U.S. also share how they have been learning from different movements, including from Hong Kong's movement on how to organize. So I think, you know, there's a trend of having more and more international cooperation and learning from each other across uh, younger generations in the world.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I have always wanted to ask you this question. I think today is a right opportunity to ask. So I wonder, was there a pivotal moment in your life that propelled you into advocacy work, or would you say it was a gradual desire that developed over time? Uh, For example, in my case, uh, I was directly affected by the Chinese oppression and atrocities in my homeland, like my close relatives. They were forcibly disappeared and sentenced to long years of prison or taken to these concentration camps and forced labor camps. So that was a moment uh, that I realized that I had to do something. I have to do something. I feel obligated. I feel guilty. And I feel like I have to help them. I feel this responsibility. So I would like to hear, like, what is your experience? Like, uh, what uh, take, took you into advocacy work? I can kind of relate to
2: that experience, Mustafa, um, I became more involved and learned more about it uh, because what had happened initially was we lost contact with my relatives abroad. And then we learned that my uncles had been detained for some period of time. And, and I was I could see the effect that this was having on my parents, my family, uh, the stress that it put on our community. And it made me want to be more involved. And finally in um, 2019, my grandfather who had been detained um, passed away shortly after being released. And for me, that was kind of the catalyst moment where I recognized that, you know, staying quiet is not gonna make anything better. It makes things worse because you need to expose crimes. You need to expose injustice in order for anything to happen. and. Um, you know, he was a prolific writer and someone who would care would put these thoughts into uh, these stories that I never had a chance to discuss with him. And it was the sense of loss and recognizing that, you know, this is something that's affecting m- millions of families.
4: Thanks for sharing, Mustafa and Barbara. Um, I- think it's actually quite the opposite for me and for many like young tibetans um i don't have any direct relations uh, and family members in tibet that i know of and i've never been to tibet before nor will i have the chance to until tibet is free so i think it's actually the idea of returning one day back home to tibet that kind of keeps the spirits and hopes of many young um, Tibetans in exile, like um, sort of keeping us going. And I think I'm super lucky because we have so many Tibet activists that we can look up to as role models. And at such a young age, I've attended plenty of trainings from like SFT as a young person. And I think it was a very natural path to take a role in the movement in that sort of way. And, especially through SFT, because I think it's one of the main spaces for young uh, people to get involved and to take actions. And so I think that was sort of like an activation moment for me is just to have gone through the trainings and to see other people, my mentors, my role models, becoming these, you know, super heroic, like really important people in our movements and just wanting to sort of follow in that like leadership role is sort of what has pushed me to even when I'm uncomfortable at times, like to really push myself and to be the best advocate or activist that I can be. Yeah,
3: and I also want to share my experience. So actually, the thing that drove me into activism uh, was because I was not physically in Hong Kong in both twenty for twenty fourteen and twenty nineteen. So I was, you know, trying to think of ways that I can be part of the movement. I can try to help, and then I figured out, you know, uh, organizing protests overseas or um, organizing global campaigns uh, online would be something that I can do. But still, during the entire course of the 2019 movement, I was this uh, anonymous uh, leader of the more underground network that people don't really know like who we were or what my name was. I was actually working under an alias, and it was just an online profile without my name or my photo attached to it. But then eventually, uh, some friends from my network uh, got caught uh, by the police, and they got imprisoned, and eventually I figured out if I went back home, uh, I would also be, you know, serving some jail time. So I was struggling for a long time on whether I would want to go home because I think the survivor's guilt really caught onto me, and I thought that the way I could contribute or the way I could really um, be with my friends uh, would be to be in jail with them. But I think at one point I started looking around uh, right here in the U.S. and I. Realize, there's actually no one left uh, to tell the story of Hong Kong, or you only have, you know, very limited people left, and everyone is dealing with, you know, their own share of trauma, and uh, no. And of course, like the more people who can speak about Hong Kong, the better. So eventually I decided that I would uh, step up. And um, funny th- funny thing is that I was actually, I used to be uh, working in the film industry, which is totally different from what I'm doing now. Um, but eventually I decided that if I don't step up, eventually there will be less and less Hong Kongers willing to step up because of the fear. And because of, yeah, because of the fear of arrest and not many people would be willing to give up you know, going the chance of going back to Hong Kong. Um, so I think that is really the pivotal moment for me is to realize and to acknowledge that there's not so many of us out here. A lot of people who used to uh, devote their life to act uh, activism or advocacy in Hong Kong are right now in jail. So it's really up to me and, you know, people who are outside to do more and take that extra step. And that's why I've decided, you know, to get into this line of work.
1: Thank you so much for sharing uh, your experience and your thoughts. I really hope that more and more uh, youth will join this advocacy team of uh, Uyghurs, Tibetans and Kongers. We really need that. Um, so uh, my next question is, how have your dreams, aspirations and goals been impacted by your experience in exile in the diaspora?
3: Yeah, uh, I can start with that because I think I mentioned it in my remarks just now, was that, um, I, you know, before everything happened, uh, I used to work in the film industry and I aspired to be an artist, uh, but because I became the survivor, um, you know, different from people who are right now sitting in jail, I uh, chose to uh, take pursue this path of uh, advocacy for Hong Kong and paving this possibility for everyone to go home but also I think my sense of understanding what advocacy means have become so different because back then it was about talking about Hong Kong in a way that only relates to human rights, democracy and freedom but since now uh, but you know uh, I think recently we have all decided or we have all realized it's important to attach the Hong Kong issues to other topics as well and especially topics that would pique more interest uh, for Americans who do not really know a lot about the CCP, and also I think partly advocacy is really about building a community because without a community you would not have a base uh, that support you to do the advocacy work. And essentially, advocacy work is also about uh, telling. Um, the stories and the opinions of people from your community so right now really my goal is to build this uh, diaspora for Hong Kongers so that we can do very robust and effective efficacy work until we can go back to Hong Kong uh, safely and freely
4: Yeah um I think I've been pretty lucky because it's impacted me in a very positive way in the sense that it's given so much... Meaning and purpose to my life. Um, that being said, I don't, I don't think every, you know, Tibetan Uyghur, or Hong Konger, should feel pressured to to do to do this work. But now that I'm involved, I almost can't imagine like not spending my day to day life fighting for human rights, especially under like oppressive conditions, like being under a dictatorship. So personally, I'm super thankful to have the privilege and opportunity. Especially as a Tibetan, because so many Tibetans um, have family members inside Tibet or have some sort of relationship inside Tibet that does not allow them to have a public-facing role like that I have right now, and so it's definitely a privilege, and um, I yeah I feel grateful in that sense, and will do whatever I can to um, advocate for those who cannot.
2: Yeah. Some. It's been an interesting last two years where essentially I've jumped um, headfirst into the human rights advocacy sphere. Uh, and, you know, I never expected to be doing stuff like this full time or to be um, an advocate for oil or people. So it's it's definitely been a change in direction from what I had normally been doing, which was just, you know marketing and communication stuff. Um, And I wanted to be able to lend my skills towards uh, something that I thought was worthwhile and fulfilling. And so here I am.
1: Thank you. Uh, So to follow that as an advocate, um, what is the future project you wish to take on in the coming days? Any plans or any exciting news you would like to share?
4: I can start Um, I well just I know Mustafa Anna and Babur and Jenny all pretty well so it's really nice to even just be sharing the space and to do all the work together I really do enjoy like all the solid work that we've been building towards in the last couple of years and like no Beijing 2022 was such a great collaborative campaign that we're all able to work on and I look forward to finding another campaign that everyone can sort of 110 percent get behind um also another campaign that i'm really excited about and like that has so much momentum is the tibet climate crisis campaign i think it's going to be able to bring together a massive pool of communities in a way that other issues don't really have as much capacity to do so i'm eager to put tibet on the map when it comes to the climate conversation whether it's be it COP27 or in any climate discussion that folks are having, raising it not only as a climate justice issue, but as a colonization through the lens of colonization and through a human rights issue that every climate justice activist should care about because those two things are linked. And I think people need to draw those connections.
2: Uh, Yeah, briefly, is a project that I'm excited for, or that I'd like to be doing or am excited to see happen is greater mobilization of Uyura youth. I think that's something that has been lacking somewhat in our communities is um, the both like out in front or also behind the scenes activism from Uyura youth. Uh, It feels, at least to me, like it could definitely be higher that we could get more Uyura youth into activism um, and it would be great to know how to do that exactly.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, to piggyback on that, we have also been thinking of ways to uh, mobilize more uh, second generations in the U.S., uh, Hong Kong Americans specifically. And I think we actually have a lot to learn from the Tibetan community and uh, Tenzin because I think um, they have done a really good job of uh, raising second generations and third generations that are uh, dedicated to the movement. But um, so that's definitely one of the projects that we have been trying to do. And besides that, uh, we're also currently trying to um, get humanitarian pathways for Hong Kongers to come to the United States, because as we are trying to um, help people to escape from political persecution in Hong Kong, we're also trying to build a more robust diaspora that would eventually, you know, have a... Uh, stronger voting power and uh, policy influence power in the U.S. that can inform the U.S. about how to best approach uh, the China issue. So I think these are just some uh, projects we have right now. But uh, on the other hand, I think what uh, Yang Song mentioned earlier about uh, um, cross-movement solidarity is really important because it's been very empowering, uh, really, to see how our diasporas have been working so closely together uh, to really... Uh, send out the same message about how um, CCP is this dictatorship that we should all uh, collectively work together to take down and hold accountable. so I think that's definitely something uh, we are uh, trying to work more on and uh, but besides cross movement, I think you know uh, cross uh, area topics should also be explored because right now uh, you can see that human rights are being valued more and more and other uh, industries as well for example a lot of private sector industry or tech sector they also have a huge need to really evaluate on how they measure or how they protect human rights and freedom so i think that's definitely something um, that we are trying to take on and trying to improve uh, just to get a larger momentum to our entire movement around the world
1: thank you it's so exciting to hear About your future projects and plans, you know the moments. I'm so happy. I wish we could you could see me now. <laughs> and, uh, I'm really smiling. I'm 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 really excited. And indeed, solidarity is very important. And I believe we will be stronger and stronger all together. So I really hope, and we all hope, actually, uh, we could support each other and stand with each other and do more cross-movement uh, work in the future, in the coming days. Um, so my last question is, as we were Tibetan or Hong Konger, so what changes do you hope to make or see within your diaspora communities? Of course, we, we just mentioned about, you know, second generation, like how we could uh, mobilize them. But besides what else, uh, what do you want to see? What changes are you hoping to make? That's,
2: that's the big one for me in the diaspora is, um, the, you know, the youth of the Uyghur diaspora being able to come together and having a greater say and taking up leadership roles and being able to s- steer the diaspora, the community and Uyghur activism to a, a, a direction um, to continue this fight so that Uyghurs can see their homeland once more, and that the diaspora is strengthened and doesn't just float away or fall apart. Um, It would be really great to have more and more Uyghur youth being able to take up these roles where what they do and what they say matters and has an impact for the better for our community.
3: Yeah, and I think I would also like to share there are really two points that I'm trying to Uh, change our diaspora the first one is definitely how people change their perception of mental health issues because I think right now our diaspora is still stunned or shocked by what happened in 2019 and how people have to go into exile because of what happened but still because the phrase of mental health depression anxiety and so and so have been so stigmatized in our own community back home so people are still trying to learn about what emotions mean and what mental health mean. But I think for us to really uh, advance you know, our cause and to have a more sustainable future, it's very important for everyone to recognize and try to be more uh, accepting of um, the difficulty we're facing uh, when we you know, come to our own mental scape and mental health. So that's definitely something I wish to change in your diaspora is to make sure that everyone is trying to look after themselves and taking care of their uh, own uh, mental health. Um, But then the second thing that I want to um, change in my diaspora is that I hope that our diaspora can turn into a rather political diaspora in the sense that uh, we don't need everyone to be working full time in, you know, HADC or UHRP or organizations like this. But then I do think that and I do hope that um, everyone, when they find their career path and when they eventually move upward to, you know, a management position or, you know, higher up, in different industries that people will always have the consciousness that they are a Hong Konger and they are still trying to find a way to go back to a free and a liberated home. And I think with that kind of mindset, actually we can change a lot of things and we can actually create a very vibrant diaspora where we can uh, use uh, our influence and our knowledge of different areas and different sectors to come together and to build a more uh, robust and comprehensive solution to what we're facing. So right now, this is really uh, what these two are really what I've been
4: trying to change and uh, help
3: the diaspora with.
4: Yeah, big ups on Anna's point about like mental health. I think activists' burnout and activist self-care is... So important. I've seen so many Tibet activists sort of go through all those processes. I think that is something like our entire movement should be like thinking about having conversations about. I um, would love to just see more, even more inclusivity and like openness, openness and willingness to work with different types of groups. Um, another point I wanted to bring up is I think some of you guys may know about the Beastie Boys. Um, And other famous bands like U2, Red Hot Chili Peppers. So way back in the day, Adam Yao and the Beastie Boys put together these Tibet Freedom Concerts that were super iconic in the late 1990s. That has done an amazing job in educating the public. So like non-Tibetans about the Tibetan Freedom Movement. And so I'm really always looking forward, always finding, trying to find ways to continue to do the work that continues to inspire others to care about our movements, not just our own communities. So I think I think about that a lot.
1: Thank you so much. Um, So it's, I'm really um, honored to be here today. And I feel I learned a lot from our speakers and like, yeah, Anna and Tenzin and Babur thank you so much yeah indeed like what you meant, what you talked about the mental wellness is really important I think in every diaspora groups including the tibetans yeah hong kongers taiwanese even like Uyghurs. yeah it is kind of taboo uh, subjects um like people really don't like to talk about uh their mental well-being at the moment so that's one of the things like that Uyghur communities for example we are tr- trying to make changes like uh, two years ago, um, a few volunteers we established uh, uh, a initiative called Uyghur Wellness Initiative, and that's one of the things that uh, we want to provide to the community that it's okay to talk about their mental well being, and we want to offer therapists to them. And we are still on our like we are still on our baby steps, and that is one of the thing. We want to make changes to talk to our um, survivors and talk to our community members so that uh, we let them know that they are not alone. And thank you all so much for your insightful answers. And thank you for the opportunity to moderate such an informative discussion today. And I will pass it back to HRF for the QA portion of this event. Thank you. Rahmat.
0: Thank you so much. Um, So we will be kicking off our Q&A section. As a friendly reminder, if you do have any questions, please send me a DM here at hrf underscore cn. Um, I do have one question here lined up already. So today's speakers, all of you come from different organizations. How about let's do a roundtable to learn a little bit more about each. Let's start off with, uh, let's start off with, Uyghur Human Rights Project, Mustafa?
1: Yeah, I would let Babur speak first. Like I'm trying to, you know, uh, take sure. care of yeah, technical stuff, I'm sorry.
0: No problem. So Babur, you are Program Director of Campaign for Uyghurs. Could you share a little bit more about your organization's work?
2: Sure, yeah. Uh, so Campaign for Uyghurs, uh, Campaign for Uyghurs is an advocacy group uh, or an advocacy organization. and Our primary mission is to promote um, the rights and freedoms of the Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples in East Turkestan, the Uyghur region. Uh, And so since 2017, um, CFU has been involved in uh, campaigning, uh, in promoting general awareness of the Uyghur genocide and the complexities around it, and advocating for Uyghur women in particular who, uh, who have faced some pretty significant uh have been the focus of some pretty significant atrocities and oppression by the ccp uh and yeah i mean we work with different organizations like uhrp uaa wuc and we also work with uh, you know cross-movement groups uh to make sure that the message is out that human rights are protected that the way genocide is known and that Uh, communities, governments, international organizations are taking action and uh, to, you know, we have a common threat, the CCP, which is attacking the well-being, liberty, and health of all our peoples. And so uh, we do our best to work with organizations to tackle that issue.
0: Thank you, Weber. Um, Anna, would you like to go next to share a few words about Hong Kong Democracy Council, HKDC? Sure. So uh, Hong Kong Democracy
3: Council is a 501c3 advocacy organization that was born out of uh, the 2019 movement of Hong Kong. And, uh, of course, the main mission for us is to really advance uh, freedom democracy uh, for Hong Kongers and see if there are any ways that we can liberate Hong Kong from uh, the dictatorship and the very uh, heightened crackdown that is happening today. So essentially, we have three pillars of work that we, we have been uh, developing over the past year, and that will include firstly the efficacy pillar. For example, right now, we have been working... On uh, advancing humanitarian pathways and provide uh, and urging uh, the U.S. to provide humanitarian pathways for Hong Kongers, and on that actually specifically, we have worked with uh, UHRP in the past uh, when. Uh, certain you know, bills were introduced. And uh, we have also been working on sanctionings with other uh, Hong Kong uh, organizations, such as Hong Kong Watch, Stand with Hong Kong, and CFHK. And uh, since last year, we've also started this uh, progressive uh, outreach uh, campaign with SFT, actually. That's how I met Yang uh, to really try to gain a more wider spectrum of support uh, for our common cause. And the second pillar of Hong Kong Democracy Council is the community pillar, And uh, for example, last year we have done two national screenings of uh, the documentary, Revolution of Our Times. This documentary is actually banned in Hong Kong, so people cannot really see it in movies back home. But then we tried to um, really get the story of Hong Kongers abroad to the U.S. and bring it to different theaters uh, in the U.S. So in the end, we have, I think, around 24 uh, uh, local community groups that helped us organize 21 uh, uh, organized uh, different screenings around 21 cities uh, in the US. And that was uh, definitely a huge success. And that was an attempt uh, to keep our identity and culture alive. And besides that, actually last month, we also organized a Hong Kong summit, which uh, HRF was also uh, part of it, uh, where we actually had uh, more than 100 uh, participants and uh, also ING representatives and also congressional office uh, staffers to join the summit and um, they had a lot of chances to network uh, and to most importantly discuss uh, where our diaspora is headed to. So that was really an, you know, a very memorable event because it was the first time that we're really seeing each other since 2019. And that was both very moving, very empowering, and very, uh, very effective uh, discussion for everyone in the diaspora. And last but not least, uh, our third pillar is the research and education pillar. And previously, we have actually um, published this research report on uh, political prisoner in Hong Kong and how the political persecution is done in Hong Kong to uh, scare a lot of people and uh, to spread uh, white terror among the community. So we're going to try to publish more reports in the future because we want to Keep uh, the Hong Kong topic alive in D.C. and also uh, in the general public. And also right now, because of the political climate in Hong Kong, uh, you don't really see a lot of documentation anymore. And there's really not a lot of media uh, in Hong Kong that can provide fair and uh, true documentation that uh, we can believe and we can use uh, to tell the world what is going on inside of Hong Kong. And that's why we are trying to take on the role to produce more reports and produce more written documentation uh, in order to inform uh, our work and really to tell the story of Hong Kongers.
0: Thank you so much, Anna, and thank you so much, Barbara, for sharing a bit about your organizations. Um, Mustafa, are you there?
1: Yes, I am here.
0: Perfect, would you like to share a little bit about Uyghur Human Rights Project?
1: Sure, Um, so Uyghur Human Rights Project uh, promotes the rights of the Uyghurs, and other Turkic Muslim peoples in East Turkistan referred to the uh, by the Chinese government as the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region um, through the research-based advocacy. Uh, so we publish reports and analysis in English and Chinese. Our latest reports include transnational repression. Uh, uh, it uh, it's been um, widely uh, uh, shared uh, by other organizations as well. So I would. Uh, recommend everyone goes to our website like uhrp.org all of our research work um, and reports are uh, there so we released more than 80 reports and briefings as well as more than 400 statements and press releases in the last couple of years Um, we also our work has been featured in uh, many uh, outlets news outlets including New York Times and Wall Street Journal, CNN, BBC, and Al Jazeera, Washington Post, and other media outlets too. Um, so our reports uh, mostly about like about defending Uyghurs' civil and political, social and cultural, and economic rights according to the um, international human rights standards. Uh, we also some of our members, like staff and board uh, members. And they have testified um, before the Parliament in the UK, in Canada, Australia, and here as well. Um, and we are also we've been also working a lot on the Uyghur forced labor issues uh, in the last three years, and we've been, we contributed a lot to the uh, passage of the Uyghur uh, Uyghur uh, Forced Labor Prevention Act. And we are currently actively working on other. Uh, bills in the Congress, such as Uyghur Human Rights Protection Act, which is HR 1630 and S1080, and also Uyghur Policy Act, HR 4785. Um, and we've also been working uh, uh, with other groups like Campaign for Uyghurs, Uyghur American Association, and we've been also doing a lot of advocacy work, like raising awareness such as in, uh, in Indonesia and Malaysia, Turkey. And we have also translated some of our reports into Japanese and Turkish and Mandarin Chinese, Bahasa and Malaya, and many languages. And we hope to produce more reports, research evidence-based reports. Um, And we look forward to working with other um, diaspora groups too.
0: Thank you, Mustafa. It looks like a Tenzin dropped. I know that she is currently abroad in Germany with some choppy service, but... Um, I do want to help drop a word about Students for Free Tibet because I really do think they do a phenomenal job. Um, Students for Free Tibet Intensum, they're currently in Germany right now because they are planning a cross-movement action camp, which is an intensive one-week training, which will provide a lot of young activists you know the skills they need for campaigning or grassroots and leadership um, skills for building a movement. Um, SFT is New York based and they are a global youth network committed to helping advance Tibetan human rights and freedom. Um, I definitely recommend you guys checking them out. They do great work. Um, I understand that right now we're at 629, we're approaching our one hour mark, but are you guys okay with one more question? Great. So sure. uh, great. So, a theme that came out across this conversation that was really strong is saying how important cross-movement solidarity is and how we're all stronger together. Um, do you have any advice for youth and other movements on how to stand up against dictatorship? So it could be the CCP or it could be Russia or it could be Cuba, it could be Egypt. Do you have any advice for them?
3: Right, I guess uh, I can start, but um, I think it's really observations but not advices, because right now the CCP is still there, so <laughs> I'm not uh, exactly, you know, succeeding at taking down, you know, dictatorships yet, but I think one thing that uh, I have learned is really in a lot of movement, uh, in a lot of crackdowns that have been committed by the CCP, the one thing that they have tried to do uh, all the time is really to Um, destruct the networks that people have built and destruct uh, the sense of community that people have. And uh, that is always the most um, toxic and I think destructive uh, uh, crackdown that they do. Because uh, the thing is, in Hong Kong, when the uh, political persecution started happening, there were a lot of... uh, I think the government was first really targeting those uh, who have been, you know, the network notes that pull different communities together and in that way uh different communities would find it harder and harder to communicate with each other and harder to harder to be on the same page about an action or about you know a stance that they would like to collectively uh, take and eventually you know trust would be lost and people would start to you know doubt each other and what each other uh, is doing so i think this sort of um it's not exactly an infiltration, but um, the sort of uh, sowing mistrust uh, within the community is by far um, the thing that destroys the movement the most. Uh, but I'm not saying that you know people have to uh, bend together no matter how someone has done you know abusive actions. But still, I think uh, it's really realizing people is the strongest uh, power you have, and uh, it's always. You know, people bending together uh, that ensure uh, we can do something together. Because if it's only one person or if it's only a few people uh, trying to take down a dictatorship, it's not going to work. But it have to be. It has to be come from the entire community, and it has to come from a very wide group of people. So that is definitely something uh, I would try to stress, as always, to build trust and to build community. And that is, and oh, and also one thing is that. Um, I think uh, solidarity, of course, uh, Hong Kongers have been building it with, um, you know, Tibetans, uh, Uyghurs, Taiwanese, and people who have been directly under um, the impact of uh, the CCP. But still, I think it's very important and crucial to have wider uh, solidarity with people in other areas, uh, such as activists, you know, in Latin America, activists in Europe, or activists fighting against uh, Russia. I think it's important that we band together. Uh, as a global coalition rather than just regional-based uh, uh, collectives that try to stand against the care ships. And that's why I think uh, HRF has been doing a very good job of trying to pull people from different areas together so that we can learn from each other and really be inspired by each other by the way uh, in the way we fight and in the way we resist.
0: Thank you, Anna. That was a great answer. Um, Mustafa, Bobber, was there anything you
1: wanted to add or chime in? Um, not really, but I th- well, I think we are still like in the process of learning from each other, and uh, and also it is like the cross moment like Tibetans and Hong Kongers and Uyghurs uh, start to uh, uh, demonstrate together and work together in the recent in the very recent uh, years and. I th- in the past, I think each organization has their own agenda, or like each groups have, uh, you know, they um, the movements were very different from each other. But but I really ho- thank you, um, uh, HRF, for putting us all together today to create this platform to exchange our ideas and thoughts. And I really look forward to working with other groups in the coming future. Well,
0: thank you, Mustafa. Bubber, was there anything you wanted to add on regarding that question?
1: I
2: think that um, Anna and Mustafa have said probably the best answers they could give. I have nothing more to add. Okay, thank you.
0: Well, I guess before we wrap up today, um, all three of you, Mustafa, Babur, Anna, are there any other final call to actions or any final messages for all of us tuning in here today?
2: Uh, if I can be a little shameless um, and say that if you want to keep uh, up with what Campaign for Oilers is doing, um, you can follow our Twitter account at C Uyghurs, um, the letter C and then Uyghurs. Um, that's where you'll find all the actions, our press releases, uh, what, what we've been doing and what we're going to get up to. And if you have five minutes after this, if you go to forcedlaborfashion.org and labor is spelled with a U. Um, and you can find a bunch of actions that you can take to lend your voice to thousands of people who are calling out brands that are complicit in oil or forced labor. Uh, and if you could do that, that would be great as well. And thank you again, uh, Human Rights Foundation, for hosting this Twitter space.
3: Um, I'll also follow, you know, follow Baru's lead to uh, shamelessly self-plug uh, our uh, organization. So uh, if you want to keep up with what's going on in Hong Kong, you can also follow Hong Kong Democracy Council at HADC underscore US. Uh, we try to uh, describe, you know, what's been going on and what's been developing in Hong Kong. And right now it's been difficult uh, to have international media cover a lot of developments on the ground just because, um it's very difficult to do uh, journalism inside of Hong Kong right now with the censorship that's been going on. So we will also try to uh, translate some of the news in Chinese into English uh, to let everyone know what's going on underground. And also uh, we're now recruiting our fall interns and fellows. So if anyone is interested or if anyone knows of anyone who could be potentially interested in doing advocacy work, community building and research work for Hong Kong and the Hong Kong diaspora, please uh, send us an application and we'll be very happy to work with everyone here.
1: Thanks. Um, Yeah, I'm going to say the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Uyghur Project. And also uh, you can join our mailing list. You can go to our website, uhrp.org. And you could also volunteer or intern uh, for us. Uh, we need people who speak. Uh, if we can speak Mandarin and English and other languages, um, if you could speak Bahasa, it would be also great uh, because we are trying to raise awareness in other uh, in other countries as well. And also, if you are U.S. citizen, I would ask you to contact your member of Congress to urge them to support or co-sponsor the Uyghur Human Rights Protection Act and Uyghur Policy Act. And and you can go to our websites and go to click the take actions uh, button and you could uh, learn what you can do for us. And also, yeah, you could also can donate uh, to the organization and the money will go to our refugees and camp survivors. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Mustafa, Babur, Anna, and Tensin, who just dropped. But thank you all for joining us today and for sharing your stories and your experiences. Um, as a gentle reminder, this discussion will be adapted as a podcast episode, and it will be released onto HRF's podcast series, Dissidents and Dictators. And that's available globally on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. For everyone tuning in today, if you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to follow all the speakers here today. And I also echo mes- I also echo their message that solidarity is incredibly important. So yes, please go follow and support them. Go follow the Uyghur Human Rights Project. Their Twitter handle is at Uyghur Project. Uh, go follow Campaign for Uyghurs. Their handle is the letter C Uyghurs C Uyghurs. Follow Students who are free to Their handle is at SFTHQ. And please also follow Hong Kong Democracy Council, and their handle is at HKDC underscore US. These organizations and these youth leaders are at the very forefront of pushing for a more peaceful, just, and free world, and we must support them. Once again, thank you all for joining. Be sure to tune in next time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank
1: you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.